Hello and welcome to Desert Island Dishes with me, Margie. I hope you've had a great week and overindulged suitably. Hopefully this episode can bridge the gap if you're in need of a bit of alone time away from the family and you can sneak off or just put your headphones in your ears there and then. If you do have a spare moment, do subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review as it really does give the show a little boost and helps me to keep bringing it to you each week. This is an exciting episode with one of the most famous chefs and restaurateurs in London. We find out about the dishes that have shaped Mark's life, his business highs and even some lows. We discover he has an unusual love of ceramic jugs all things awful and we find out which restaurant in the world he likes so much he wishes it were his without further ado here is today's episode my guest today is mark hicks renowned chef and restaurateur mark is widely recognized as the reviver of modern british cuisine and is famous for his focus on a straightforward interpretation of british cooking he is without a doubt one of london's most eminent restaurateurs Mark launched his first restaurant, Hicks Oyster and Chop House in Farringdon in 2008, after having spent 17 years as chef director at Caprice Holdings. He followed the opening of his first restaurant with Hicks at Brown's Hotel, Hicks Soho and the chicken and steak restaurants Tram Shed in Shoreditch and Hicks to Bankside. In February 2016, Mark teamed up with the artist Damien Hurst to open Pharmacy 2 at the Newport Street Gallery in Vauxhall. Somehow, amongst all of that, Mark has written 10 cookbooks, he has a weekly food column, and he hosts an annual food festival in Lyme Regis, Food Rocks, to showcase the best producers and suppliers in Dorset and nearby. It has been said about Mark by none other than Tracy Emin, what's amazing about his success is how nice he is. People have said that it's hard to describe you as just a chef because you're much more of a businessman slash food artist. Isn't that quite a cool description? Well, (laughs) the thing is, when you have restaurants, you have to be, you have to do a bit of everything, really. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I design the restaurants myself, you know, get a junkyards and collect stuff. That's so cool. Lights, that sort of stuff. And that surely, it's not something that you have to do. Like you could get someone else to do that, but it's sort of part of the overall... Yeah, I just feel that it gives it your own touch, really, if you know, if you get involved in the sort of design element. Definitely. So I I sort of love doing that and I I do that at home as well. So I, you know, redesign my apartment and from scratch. So, uh, yeah, so a bit of everything, really. I collect a bit of art and that's often, you know, a big part of the design of the restaurant. I like the phrase food artist. I think that's something to aspire to. (laughs) So you've worked in some capacity since the age of 12 and you say yourself that you had no grand ambitions as a child and fell into cooking. Is it true you wondered whether to study catering or metalwork? No, metalwork was, (laughs) no. So what happened was in the fifth year at school, it was the first time boys could opt out of a subject and do domestic science. Oh, right. So it's a choice of metalwork or domestic science. Okay. So I used to hate metalwork. So three of us decided to do domestic science, thinking we'd be in a classroom full of girls. Yeah. <laughs> and then all the girls decided to do metalwork. Oh, no way. <laughs> so we turned up and there's three boys and the teacher. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> what are the chances? I know. So, anyway, so we just messed around for a year and it wasn't, and I worked in a pub, you know, in the weekends and stuff. 
I kind of just, yeah, that was sort of falling into it, really. Yeah. And still didn't know what to do when I... And it was at Weymouth College that you met Laurie Mills, the teacher, and your first significant culinary inspiration. Yeah, so he was very inspiring. You know, he'd worked in London and was always talking about London. He was a good laugh. Outside of work, we used to sort of go and party at his place. So he sort of inspired you to cook, but also yeah, sort of dreaming fun, of London. The fun element as well. Yeah. So, yeah, which, I, which which then was, you know, quite attractive for me that it wasn't just slogging away all day. You know, yeah. There was, there was some fun. <laughs> Definitely. Attached. So you grew up in Bridport, a seaside town on the Dorset coast, and you were raised by your grandparents on a diet of simple country dishes. So I'm looking forward to hearing your first desert island dish of the day. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yeah, so it was probably, well, one of two things, or you could serve them together. So I used to go fishing for mackerel when I was a kid, and I used to bring a carrier bag home, and my gran would, you know, cook cook it up that night for supper and then souse the rest and put them in the fridge. Yum. And then my grandfather used to um, grow tomatoes in his greenhouse. So the sort of souse mackerel and the fresh tomatoes just sprinkled with salt and sarsen's vinegar were the, my sort of childhood memories but simple things yeah simple but delicious so that probably later in life sort of influenced my sort of simple approach to cooking really. yeah also that implies you were quite a good fisherman uh, well it was just <laughs> mackerel they're easy really. are they easy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on moving to london you worked at some of the best hotels around the hilton the grosvenor house hotel and the dorchester what were those years like was it play hard work hard yeah it was a bit play hard work hard it you know it's quite a tough business to be in and you know when you're a young kid you want to sort of learn as much as possible and sort of you know fresh fresh in London yeah you know that was did you love working in a professional kitchen from the get-go like was it just yeah it's a very good you get a very good sense of discipline it's a good sort of social thing yeah and seriously hard work yeah it's hard work but I was sort of lucky I think I didn't work in kitchens where you had to work from sort of seven in the morning till midnight. Okay. <laughs> um, so the Grosvenor House and the Dorchester were sort of shifts. You know, a lot of friends of mine later in life were working sort of all day and night, really. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lucky, lucky, a lucky escape. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was, yeah. <laughs> At the age of just 22, you got your first job as head chef. And of that time, you say, it was a bit about being in the right place at the right time. I asked if I could have his job and that was it really. But was it really that simple? Yeah, no, it was, it was. I sort of, I suppose I fast-tracked my career a little bit. Yeah. From, you know, working in hotels to working in a small sort of unknown restaurant and then sort of working my way up, really, from there. So that that little stint after the hotels for four years um, put me in good stead to then go on to do, you know, the Caprice and the Ivy and Cheekies and stuff. Yeah. Do you think with all successful people there is an element of luck and happenstance involved. Is that just the nature? Yeah, I think, I think so. You know, I, I think there is an element of luck, you know, who you bump into or whatever. Yeah. And I think the, yeah, being in the right place at the right time is certainly. But then I guess it's also the flip side is you're putting yourself out there and making sure you're kind of in the right place at the right time. So it's sort of, I don't know, it's a combination. Yeah, yeah, you fall into it. I suppose it's, you know, who you hang out with or whatever it's, yeah um, moving on to the second desert island dish of the day what's the first dish you learned to cook the first dish i learned to cook um well it might have been that sized mackerel with my grandmother yeah she used to make sort of cakes and things but i didn't really regard that as cooking so i didn't really cook with her much i, I was just curious sometimes. yeah 
Like how old were you when you actually... Well, probably in that domestic science thing at school. What, yeah, what I'm saying kind of we used to do doing? things like pineapple upside down cake and okay. that sort of stuff, <laughs> which much later in life I ended up putting back on the menu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah, it's such a delicious sort of dish. It really is. Um, so delicious. Sticky sort of, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So it came full circle. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your first venue, Hicks Oyster and Shop House in London, Smithfield. What are the practical realities of opening a restaurant? How did you go from deciding that you did actually want your own place to making that happen? Well, at the time, uh, my business partner and I, we sort of... How did you find your business partner? Well, we, we worked together at the Caprice Group. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he left before me whilst I was still there, sort of, you know, saying, you know, should we do something together? And then suddenly this restaurant came up in Smithfield, which was good size. It was affordable. Was it already a restaurant? Yeah, it was. It'd been there since the 70s. I'd actually been there before. It was called Rutland and Stubbs. Okay. It was an old fish restaurant. Yeah, we did this sort of simple... We for you know we didn't have any money. Yep. And uh, so you had investors. Uh, no investors. No, there was just two of us. Okay. Yeah. That's so amazing. I, I was always the majority shareholder, and yeah, so we did it up, and you know, sort of found some old lights, and we sort of kept the old tiles on the walls and the, the marble bar top and that sort of thing. And is it true that? Even now, sort of with every restaurant that you open, you find the location and then you kind of build the concept around. Yeah, exactly. Was that true even back yeah. then? So because it was an old part of London in the old Smithfield market, I just finished writing the British regional book. And in London, then sort of old restaurants were either uh, chop houses or taverns. Okay. And oysters had sort of faded out of London. A couple of friends of mine, uh, the Wright brothers and Richard Corrigan had opened oyster bars. I thought, you know, the sort of meat scare had just gone on. Oh, and yeah. I thought, you know, time to get meat on the bone back on. Yeah. So the combination of what was street food in London, oysters, and serving all the meat on the bone, you know, it was quite risky. But I needed to do something new that people weren't quite expecting. Yeah. So it felt like a bit of a risk, but a risk that paid off. Um, and did you find the different, like, did you find the experience of being a head chef to actually being head chef and owner was that whole thing really different to yeah well it is a bit yeah and I, I from, from day one when I opened the chop house I kind of employed a head chef so that I could keep an eye on everything okay even though we were only one restaurant in but soon to open uh Hicks and Fish House okay so you sort of always had your eye on the, the yeah bigger... and that came up more or less the same time as we were opening so we we got that open sort of three months later that's so cool. So it's, everything just happened quite, nice. quite quickly. Yeah, so it's quite a nice story, you know, to have Hicks Oyster and Chop House in London, Hicks Oyster and Fish House, Town in Dorset. Yeah, so really near, nice. Near hometown. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mark, moving on to the third Desert Island dish of the day. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? Best dish I've ever eaten? I've eaten lots of good dishes. I, I, it's quite difficult to sort of... It's a head scratcher. Yeah, yeah, there it is. You know, there's dishes that I've eaten which have just been simply cooked... Cod tongues, for example, in, in Spain, uh, when I first ever tasted them, which are on the menu now. And then I had a dish in Spain. Uh, I used to have a girlfriend whose parents live in Spain. So I'd, a lot of my influences uh, in the early days came from, came from Spain when I first started at Caprice, from things like black rice. I had a dish called Tripa de Bacalao, which is cod tripe, Ooh. which was the kind of salted belly and some of the innards. Okay. which is really tasty it's, yeah it's with wild mushrooms so is that probably, quite traditional spanish well it is in some regions okay yeah uh, it's very much a sort of catalan thing 
And some of the restaurants around there at the time were just very, very simple. So I, I think probably a mixture of dishes from that sort of period. Nothing, nothing in particular, but I sort of always make reference to those very simple sort of Catalan uh, dishes. Yeah. Does that mean that if you ever play the game where you're only allowed to eat one type of cuisine for the rest of your life, would it be Spanish? Uh, Spanish or Italian, maybe. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good choices. One other dish that stood out was um, actually in Italy. It was a braised horse cheek. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Just was really simple with apple sauce. That was um, quite interesting. I've never eaten horse cheek. No, before. I don't think I have either. Have you eaten them since? Uh, no, because, you know, you can't get it in this country. Yeah. <laughs> but I would go back to that restaurant for that dish. Mm, okay. So you were chef director at Caprice, which is very smart and formal dining. And your own places, by contrast, have all been slightly less formal and they sort of feel a lot more fun. Was that a conscious decision? Well, Caprice wasn't that formal, really. It was, you know, the food was very simple. It was a brasserie environment. Yeah. So I suppose I took a lot of my... Uh, it, was, it was a bit like a sort of New York brasserie, I suppose, if you like. Yeah. Best way to describe it. And then working for Chris Corbin and Jeremy King, you know, they were sort of big influences on uh, what I'm doing now, I suppose. Yeah. And cooking for the customer as opposed to cooking, you know, what the chef wants to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, different kind of cooking. Yeah. So um, that, was a, that was a big sort of learning curve in my life, in my career, really. Working yeah. for Chris and Jeremy. Yeah. So you've managed and owned some of the top restaurants in London. And this is obviously a difficult question, but what is the secret to a great restaurant? You seem to sort of have the, the magic formula. Well, not always. There are so many restaurants opening now that, you know, uh, you have to sort of constantly be, you know, trying to keep on top of the game. Because yeah. new restaurants open, new trends occur. What was, you know, what was someone's favourite restaurant Last year is not necessarily always their favorite favorite restaurant this year. Yeah. So do you feel that you feel sort of a constant pressure to sort of innovate and and with all the competition? Sometimes it's the magic formula, sometimes. But saying that, you haven't opened any that haven't worked? Like, Well, no, of... I have. I have. That's the thing. So, I, I, yeah, I opened a restaurant in Belgravia in a hotel about six years ago. The hotel was being run... It was a new hotel run by uh, Thompson Hotels, okay. uh, 60 Thompson in New York. Yeah. And I knew them and I thought, okay, we haven't got a restaurant in that area. Opened and then... What was the name of the hotel? It was uh, Belgraves Hotel okay. and Hicks Belgravia was the restaurant. Yeah. Anyway, it sort of started off okay. It wasn't that busy because I, I later found that Belgravia was full of, you know, big expensive houses, but not many people actually lived in them. Oh, Yes. Yes. And then after about six or seven months, I thought, yeah, this is not going very well. We're not making any money. We're losing money. So I managed to pull out because we never, ever got to sign our 10-year contract. Oh, right. So I got out after 11 months uh, and lost like £800,000. Okay. So that was <laughs> a bit think, of a learning curve. Yeah. And that wasn't one of my successes, but no. it was... Yeah, certainly a learning point. But you bounce back and I think probably that's very encouraging for other people to hear that, you know, that that's bound to happen in any successful yeah. person's life. Yeah, and there's one other restaurant which was in the city in Devonshire Square, which didn't quite work out. We sort of hung hung on for two years and it just didn't work. So what I've learned now is if, if you open something and it doesn't work, just get the hell out. 
I want, yeah, I wonder with um, restaurants, like how, how long is that period that you give it? Like if it's... Well, you know, this one was, the Belgravia one was quite short, you know, yeah. 11 months. Because do you, do you think if you'd persevered, it could have, things could have I changed? I don't know. Or... I, dri- I drive past it on my scooter now sometimes and it's, it looks a bit dead. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're like, yeah. that was still a good yeah, decision. I, I don't, it's changed. It's changed about three times. Since okay, then. that's always a sign, isn't it? Right, moving on to possibly the most important question of the day. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? My favourite sandwich? Well, I sort of, you know, I quite like a good old-fashioned cheese and pickle sandwich. Nothing wrong with know? that, Mark. I love a good club sandwich. Yes. Uh, but over the years, like, we've sort of invented different sandwiches. We do a, we do a shrimp burger, Ooh. which is served at the Fish House. I saw it in an American magazine about 15 years ago. It's basically just minced up prawns with spring onions and a bit of spice. And you make that into a sort of burger. Yum. With a spicy tartar sauce. So that's, that's probably one of my favourite sandwiches, I would say. Yep. But, you know, at different times of the day, you know, yep, good bacon butty in the morning. Yes. Good bacon, sourdough, brown sauce, preferably. Yep, nothing wrong Always works. with that. <laughs> so, yeah, different sandwiches for different times of the day, I think. Really. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair answer. <laughs> Depends how you're feeling. Yeah, and I suppose there's different classifications of sandwich. I did a dinner party on Saturday night and I did a, a take on the Chinese prawn toasts. Ooh. But I did it with cuttlefish and cuttlefish ink. Ooh. So I sort of blended it up. That sounds amazing. And spread it on these sort of round toasts and dipped them in black and white sesame. So that was a good Yum. sort of sandwich. Yeah, really. Yeah. That counts. And I think, well. you know, you can go quite a long way with sandwiches. Uh, I've not answered your question, what's my favourite <laughs> all-time sandwich? You're skirting around because I think, it. <laughs> I think there are different, different sandwiches for different occasions. If I, if I put a gun to your head and you had to pick a sandwich, which one of those would you pick? Okay, a lobster club sandwich. <laughs> okay, that's, yes, a, a different answer to the one. Because actually you- <laughs> lobster and bacon is, is really good together and that... Addition of crispy lettuce and mayonnaise. Yes. You know. I've never had that, but I, I need to. That sounds amazing. So you've collaborated with Damien Hurst, both at Tramshed and with Pharmacy 2. How did you get into the world of art? Has it always been something that interested you? Yeah, I lived in this area, Shoreditch, for many years, about 20 years. And sort of got to know a lot of the artists, the young up-and-coming artists and yeah, really. Just sort of went to, socially. Yeah, socially, yeah. And I had a restaurant next door called The Rivington. Yeah. And I sort of hosted a lot of new gallery openings for sort of artists. And that's, yeah, that's sort of how I got to know them all, really. It was a sort of interesting time because a lot of the new emerging galleries were in Shoreditch. A lot of the artists who were up and coming lived east. It was affordable. They sort of lived and worked east. So, yeah, that's sort of how I got to know them, really. But it also seems like it's such a common sense collaboration because they can kind of use your walls as a bit yeah, of a gallery. Yeah, exactly. So I, I always feel that, you know, an, an artist who has work in a restaurant, potentially more people are going to see that work yeah. going through the restaurant yeah. than sometimes the gallery. Mm. Uh, so, in a more sort of natural way. Yeah, yeah, sort of. exactly. So I, when I opened the tram shed where we're sitting now, uh, the room in the basement, uh, it didn't have a license, so I used to use it for occasional events and then suddenly thought I should make it into a gallery Yes, for uh, emerging, you know, focusing on emerging artists. 
yeah, that makes so much sense. And obviously, Tram Shed has the huge... Yeah, the Damien Hirst cow yeah. and chicken. What, what was is... the reaction to that? No, I went to a site meeting one day and my architect had moved what is now the mezzanine to the centre of the room. And we used to sort of look at this model every week. And I said, no, it doesn't really look well. I think we should leave it at the back. But I think what we could do is put some sort of sculpture in the middle of the room. So at that meeting, I texted uh, Damien and said, look, you know, have a quick look. (laughs) (laughs) Have a quick look at uh, my new chicken and steak restaurant. So he had a quick look. A couple of days later, sent me an image of what this tank with the cow and the chicken could look like. And we sort of went to work on it. That's so cool. My business partner at the time said that if you put a cow in formaldehyde in the restaurant, I won't come to the restaurant. Oh, my goodness. Because he was Hindu. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we won him over. But everyone around the table. Has he been to the restaurant? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, he even started eating beef. Oh, he did? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so everyone loved it. And then the next thing was going to work on finding the cow. Yeah. Go in there. Because what we didn't want is for the cow to be killed for the art piece. No. So the cow was on the way to the knacker's yard but we had to find a sort of good-looking cow. I gave my meat supplier in Ireland the task of finding the cow. <laughs> you must have, that must have been one of the craziest requests you've had. I think the farmer had, like, like, doesn't know where his cow no. ended up. <laughs> um, and is it true that you taught Tracy Emin to cook? She always says that, but it's not really true. Really? No, we, we, do, have, we, we, we do cook together sometimes. We have a bit of fun. Yeah. yeah. Is she a good cook? Uh, yeah, she's not bad. You know, she likes just simple, simple things, really. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the fifth Desert Island dish of the day. What's the dish that you eat the most often? The dish I eat the most often is, yeah, I don't know if it's a particular dish, but I quite like finding a sort of, you know, scruffy Chinese restaurant that's new. Uh, There's a lot of sort of Szechuan restaurants opening up in London. And just opposite me in Bermondsey is, I've only lived there for a year, but it's a really good Szechuan called Crystal China. And it's full of... uh, Chinese, and because I suddenly found out there's like Chinese universities around there. Oh, right. And they do a lot of offal. And I think Chinese do offal really well. So they've got about half a dozen dishes on there from pig's kidneys to tripe to intestines and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, served in a sort of Szechuan way. Yeah. So I go there once a week and normally end up having the same dish and trying some new dishes. Nice. Is that sort of somewhere that you end up quite late at night? or is that... It doesn't open that late, sadly. Okay. But I do quite often go to uh, a Chinese in Chinatown. So normally after the Groucho Club. Yeah. Is there one it's in particular? 2.30 in the morning. It's called Hung. Okay. H-U-N-G. Yeah. And they do very good beef tendons. Mm. So you're quite into mm. the offal. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's one of those sort of things that a lot of people turn their noses up at. But I've never really tried it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's more so, just the sound of it. Yeah, like loads of people eat calves liver, but actually, you know, calves liver is as awfully as you, you know, you can get really. That's true. So when you go to these Chinese restaurants with other people, are you sort of in charge of the ordering? Yeah, even my young daughter who loves Chinese food, she's five years old. I get her eating all sorts of stuff. Oh, really? That's so good. She She's eaten squirrel. At the squirrel? Shop, yeah. Oh my goodness. At the Oyster and Chop House. You have that on the menu? I didn't know that. <gasps> Occasionally we have squirrel on. And uh, so her fate, so she, you know, she, we went there when she had uh, two helpings of braised squirrel. Oh my God, that's so cool. And told all her schoolmates about it on sort the Monday. Boasting in the schoolyard. And, and obviously none of them believed, believed her that she'd had squirrel. But, uh, they probably imagined you like hunting down a squirrel and cooking it on yeah. a barbecue. But she loves things like lobster, langoustines. 
She's got very good taste buds. Yeah, she does. That's quite, awesome. Quite often when she comes to one of my restaurants, they, they put a, a children's menu in front of her and she pushes it to one side does and she? says, I, I want lobster and chips. <laughs> oh my goodness, a girl after my own heart. That's amazing. Um, so other than the Chinese restaurants, where are your favourite restaurants to go? Indian-wise, I love going to places like Gymkhana. Yes. Hopper. I've yet to find an Indian restaurant near Bermondsey that's any good. Okay. But I did cook a very good goat curry last night. Ooh, sounds good. Uh, my friend was always banging on about a sort of Caribbean goat curry, so I I went to the shop that I knew sold goat, and I made a sort of my normal curry base, but added a bit more cinnamon and cloves and things to it. What with goat, do you have to cook it for quite a long time? Yeah, it took quite a while to cook, about yeah. three hours. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want tough goats. No. No. But yeah, certainly Jim Carner. Uh, I'm going to, on the 22nd next week, I'm going to a new Indian with my friend Angela Hartnett. Oh, so she's good she, friend she, to have been, Mark. Well, she was around for dinner on Saturday, <laughs> so I cooked up a little uh, series of dishes. But so she's taken me to an, uh, an Indian restaurant in, uh, I think it's in Peckham or somewhere. Cool. And I think they, they used to work for Jim Carner, I think. Okay. God, do the chefs so there know that you forward. two are turning up? Yeah. <laughs> are there any, or is there any restaurant in the world where you've been to or you want to go and you think, oh, I wish that was mine? That's a very good question. The Yeah, there are. I mean, there's a there's a very good restaurant in, every year we go to, to France to Tracy Emin's birthday party. Yeah. And without fail, we go to this restaurant on this nudist beach. Oh. <laughs> right, so, so we, we, we go, but you can only really get there by boat, otherwise it's a very long journey, and it's called uh, Shay Joe. And we have to sort of anchor up and swim in, or a little boat comes and collects us. Yeah. Okay. They just do, and it's, it's, it's right on the water. They just do one very simple fish dish cooked uh, in a wood-fired oven with simple sliced potatoes. Occasionally they they have like you know lobster and that sort of stuff, but there's the, the menu's limited. It's crude taste to start with and a couple of other things. But I love that idea of you know a, a very simple fish restaurant you know on the coast uh, where you're sort of you know you, you're eating whilst you can hear the sort of sea lapping up against the rocks. That sounds amazing. Not necessarily the nudist. No, I was going to say are clothes involved or. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, it's, it's sort of an elderly okay. nudist beach. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? <laughs> they don't get the, uh, sort of the younger generation turning up there. They have to sort of swim through the nudists uh, and then walk up the beach. To, to the That's quite a bizarre. That's quite an image. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about your go-to dinner party dish. It's the sixth desert island dish of the day. Well, I reckon, uh, not just for me, but for anyone doing a dinner party at home, I, I think often people try a bit too hard to impress their friends at dinner parties. Yeah. So the biggest mistake is, for me, is, you know, trawling through cookbooks, making your shopping list and then finding halfway through your shop that you can't get half the ingredients. Yeah. So I, I always recommend people to go shopping first, you know, find the main course, just don't worry about recipes and things. They just make it really simple. But years ago at the Caprice, we did this dish called Scandinavian ice berries with hot white chocolate sauce. Oh, yum. It's really simple. It's just frozen small berries, no big berries like blackberries, so wild strawberries, raspberries, red currants, and blueberries. And you just serve them frozen on the plate, hot white chocolate sauce. Uh, so 
50% white chocolate, 50% double cream, but it's got to be piping hot so that it <laughs> half melts the berries. So you can put the frozen berries in front of your guest and just go around the table and pour yeah, the sauce over. That sounds amazing. So that's like a you know three ingredient sort of no brainer dinner yeah. party dish. And kind of fun because when you put them down in front of people, people are sort of like, oh, okay, Mark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for putting And people love it. So I've reintroduced it recently onto the menu. Such a good dish. Uh, and there was a very famous chef whose name I won't mention years ago, decided to put the dish in one of his cookbooks. Okay. And left out an ingredient. Oh, no. One, one of the three. <laughs> and that ingredient was the double cream. Oh, no. So you can imagine what happens to the melted chocolate when you pour it onto oh, frozen berries. Yep. A mess. But he never credited me oh. <laughs> in the recipe. So, oh, no. So, well, that's lucky yeah, because, lucky. because yeah. he messed it up. <laughs> um, so I heard an interview where you said you'd only ever read two books in your life and one was Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. What was the other? <laughs> the other one was one of those books that you read at school. A Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, no, no. It's about, the, it was called, um, oh God, what was it called? It's about smugglers in Dorset because one of the school books was about this smuggler called Blackbeard. It might okay. have even been called Blackbeard. Oh, yeah, I think maybe it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was one of those books you sort of read together at school. Yeah. Uh, but I took my twin, I've got twin daughters, to Morocco years ago. Yeah. And it was, they, they were quite young, about maybe five or something. And I sort of checked into this sort of seaside hotel and, yeah, they were playing in the pool. So I managed to read uh, Kitchen Confidential, yeah. which had just come out at the time from sort of front to back just by the pool and that's the only time I've sort of finished really is that really true because everyone was saying to me oh yeah you know have you read that book Kitchen Confidential and a lot of people who had read it thought that kitchens really are like that yeah some are yeah some aren't yeah (laughs) so I thought I'd better read it for myself to make sure so so although I do a lot of writing I I don't really do a lot of reading to be honest I've got Behind me. Yeah, I know. We're in the library. 2000. I know. Unread. Uh, yeah. <laughs> rich. You know, I, I sort of tend to use for reference more than anything. But yeah. I, I, I just love the idea of having old cookbooks. Some of them are from the 1800s. Wow. Uh, so this is your personal day. collection. Mm. And I've awesome. got more at home and more in Dorset as well. So, But yeah, as someone who writes a lot, it is unusual that you don't read a lot because the two sort of do go hand yeah, in hand. Yeah, I think you do find... I sort of write a bit off the cuff, if you like. <clears throat> you know, pay, people like um, Adrian Gill, for example. Yeah. You know, great. He was a great writer, um, but also um, fairly dyslexic yes. as well. So you, I think you do find a lot of uh, journalists who write for a living uh, do tend to write off the cuff and have their own style of writing. Yeah. You definitely write as you talk, which yeah, I think exactly. is a lovely yeah, yeah. skill. Yeah, so it's sort of fairly simple. But, you know, I think more people should write, really, because I think, yeah. you know, a lot of people have got a lot to save themselves and sort of keep it from, you know, keep it within. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a great way if you write weekly. You know, I, I wrote for The Independent for 14 years in a magazine. That's all of the... Oh, yeah, I know. I saw that's all the Independent that. magazines over there. Uh, sadly, The Independent folded up, but I do write regularly for... City AM, yes, you know, and then the magazine. So yeah. it's quite nice having that sort of uh, regular voice. If you yeah, know. really nice. And I've heard that you're a fairly passionate collector of glug jugs. Mm. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, my grandmother used to have a green one, rather like the one there. Oh yeah, which sort of in sat the, on the a traditional one in the shape yeah. of a fish. 
which sort of sat on the sideboard. And I, I used to always look at it and think, you know, I don't like the look of that thing. It looks, oh. <laughs> a, bit, it looks a bit scary. And then much later in life, I found one on a, in a, a junk shop, bought it exactly the same green one. And then I started discovering that there were other colours. And uh, when I opened the tram shed, I, I found a chicken one. Perfect. Uh, so we started serving our water out of chicken glug lugs. That's so cool. Uh, but then people nicked them and they got oh. broke and everything. But Do people really I, do that in restaurants? Yeah, they nick all sorts they of things. They steal jug. Yeah. How? Steal the tankard. <gasps> what? So my, my, my personal colourful glug lug selection is at home. But I've got all different ones. I've got uh, my friend Ollie, who is a shooting and hunting guide in Tuscany. So how many do you think you have? Yes, yeah, so I've got quite a few now. So I, I was I was flying to Tuscany in the afternoon and I, I just popped down to Columbia Road. I walked into the shop and staring at, and we were, the idea was we were going to shoot wild boar yep. and fish in Tuscany. And staring at me on the shelf was these two wild boar glug lugs. No way. Yeah. So I, uh, I bought them both, one as a gift for my friend Ollie and one to go in my glug lug collection. And how big is this collection? Uh, well, I've, I've, I've probably got maybe 15 or something. So it ranges from little half-size ones to different coloured fishes and chickens, uh, the wild boar. And I've got two the Japanese sake ones, but they're oh. not glug lug. They're okay. kind of like little fishes. Okay. With the, but the sake comes out of the mouth. Okay. That sounds cool. So, yeah, so I've got all sorts of different ones. It, it, and it's one of those things that you start collecting things. I started collecting decanters years ago like wine decanters and then i started collecting pie funnels oh you know once you start you can't stop yeah, yeah exactly you see one that you haven't got and you have yeah. to buy it sort of thing <laughs> so it's the same with the glug lugs so you have to keep moving house so that you get more space yeah <laughs> yeah luckily the pie birds don't take up much room but yeah. I've, not, I've not bought one for a couple of years Ooh, well so i need to uh... <laughs> treat yourself this christmas mark <laughs> and you have a pestle and mortar that belonged to elizabeth david in your kitchen does that mean she's a bit of a food hero of yours yeah she is i suppose because i collect old cookbooks people like elizabeth david anna del conte those sort of, those sort of food writers who were as good as you know as good as the best to it, yeah. writing about food. Like, yeah, and, and the they, they changed the face of British Yeah, cooking. exactly. So, yeah, so the, the mortar and pestle, when when her stuff was being auctioned off, uh, my friend uh, Val Warner bought it for me as a gift. So Good gift. It sits next to the glug lugs yeah. on a shelf at home. <laughs> Pride of place. Mm-hmm. Right, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish of the day, and that's the I'm not actually giving you one yet, have I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've skirted around them, but I'm going to get you on this one. There's so many things that I like. This is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Before going to the desert island? Yes. Uh, yeah. You're allowed a starter, a main course, and a oh, pudding, really? if that helps. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I might just choose one thing then. Well, if I was going off to a desert island, I would probably choose something really simple like fish and chips. Yes. That you know you couldn't recreate on a desert island. Yeah, you know. <laughs> raw have a fish, deep fat raw fish, or barbecued <laughs> fish on a desert yep. island is doable. So, uh, yeah, I, I would probably have my last fish and chips. Well, it might not be the last. No, it might not. It would stay in your. It would stay in your mind. Yeah. Where's the best fish and chips you've had? Well, in London, do you, do you know what? A, a lot of restaurants are serving good fish and chips now. Yeah, they are. They're not the best fish and chips. Is not necessarily always from the takeaway. I mean, good fish and chips. I've had. Over the years, a lot of them are sort of, you know, in seaside towns and things, but there, they, there was a very good one up in North London 
which is called the the twins, is it? The brothers, sorry. Okay. You know what I mean? No. no. It's, it's one by two brothers and they, uh, yeah, they, they, they do do the best fish and chips, I think. Okay, that's a good tip. And mm. if you could just have one pudding, what would it be? Well, one pudding, a, a, a creation, it's not even my creation, but I, I nicked it and modified it recently. That's okay. <laughs> is, uh, I went to a charity dinner and the pudding was, the, the chef that was cooking, uh, uh, guy called Richard Turner, and I had this uh, steamed marmalade and bourbon pudding, Ooh. which is probably the best steam pudding I've ever had. Wow. You can't beat a good steam pudding no. in custard. So he kindly gave me his recipe. And it's, it's, it's got things like breadcrumbs in it and stuff, which is sort of slightly different than your, you know, spongy yeah. um, steam pudding. So I, I sort of adapted it slightly, made it English and used Kingston Black apple aperitif. So that's probably, yeah, that's, and it's also a fairly recent find. But yeah. I would say that and the frozen berries. Oh, yes. I mean, it's your final meal, so you can yeah. just push the boat out and yeah, have exactly. a double pudding. Mm. <laughs> and you're allowed to take with you one luxury item. What are you going to take with you? One luxury item. A glug jug? Oh, I see. It doesn't have to be food. Oh, no. Oh, well, actually, yeah, a glug glug jug would be good, I think, if you're stranded on a desert yeah, island. Yeah, that would be pretty know, handy. Collect some fresh water. Yeah. Keep it in the glug glug. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it might attract a few unusual birds when it's glugging. <laughs> it <Yeah>. might do, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes, Mark Hicks. If you've never tried the frozen berries with hot white chocolate, you must immediately. In fact, it's a very good New Year's Eve pudding and it's so easy. Just don't forget that the sauce is half white chocolate and half double cream. It's so good. If you haven't seen a glug glug jug before, I guarantee you will start seeing them everywhere now. A bit like the red car thing. The moment you think of a red car, you just start seeing them everywhere. As always, check out www.desertislanddishes.co to see the recipe I've created inspired by Mark's choice of Desert Island dishes. And there is no offal involved. I will see you next time for another episode of Desert Island Dishes. In the meantime, have an amazing week and I will see you shortly. Bye.